Good evening, everybody. Thanks for coming out tonight. So tonight we have a very interesting topic. The Bible offers salvation from sin and suffering. And the question of human suffering is something that every human being has to grapple with. The reality of our mortality, the pain that we experience, and also the tragic circumstances that can affect our lives and the lives of those whom we love. Something is some, suffering is something that we're very aware of in our lives because uh, it directly affects us, something that, is, that we're not so aware of. And people don't typically give sin all that much thought. But tonight is about both topics, sin and suffering, because we believe that they are connected. Tonight we want to explain, explain what the Bible says about sin, what it says about suffering, and also salvation. So at the end we'll ask the question, will you respond? Alright, let's start talking about suffering. The causes for suffering are numerous. Here are some causes for suffering. Natural disasters, that is things like floods, cyclones, earthquakes, tsunamis. And it's, it's really incredible and, and dreadful how many people have died from natural disasters over the years. And there's social evils. These are things like war, terrorism and bad government. And then we have accidents, things like car crashes. Over a million people die every year from car crashes. Quite tragic. Uh, then we have disease, which is a big cause of suffering in the world. The coronavirus has killed over three million people. And who hasn't had a friend or a family member touched by disease, be it cancer, dementia, motor neuron disease, heart disease, amongst many other diseases? The history of the human race has, of course, been plagued by disease for millennia. And finally there we have emotional and psychological suffering. All sorts of life circumstances, of course, take their toll on us humans. And people, not, not many people, haven't felt some degree of suffering from emotional and psychological distress. Um, indeed, some people experience a huge amount of, of suffering from that. This is not an exhaustive list of the different types of suffering that are in the world, but I think a lot of suffering does fall into these categories. When you think about the different types of suffering in the world, though, it's clear that some suffering's caused by humans and some is, is caused by just the nature of the world that we live in. Who's to blame for war, murder, abuse, drink driving, smoking, and the suffering that comes along with those things? Well, of course, it's human beings. Humans are to blame. Human choices are the result of our free will or our autonomy, and that can cause suffering. But other forms of suffering in the world are simply a result of the natural world that we live in. Who's to blame for earthquakes, tsunamis, mosquito-borne diseases, cancer and lightning strikes? These are simply natural events that happen in the world, and you can't really point the finger at anyone. Or, or can you? Of course, some people would blame God. Say, so if, if there is a God, why doesn't God stop these things? If God's in control, well, maybe he's to blame. Well, the question of why God allows suffering is something that has been considered for millennia of time. There's a Scottish philosopher in 1776 called David Hume, and he put the question this way. He said, Is God willing to prevent suffering, but not able to? Then he's impotent. He, he's a powerless and ineffective God. 
If God is able to prevent suffering but, but unwilling to do so, well then he's malevolent, he's an evil God. And is God both able and willing to prevent suffering? Well, why doesn't he? Whence is the evil, says David Hume? Why on earth doesn't God stop the suffering that people experience? If God has the power and the willingness to prevent suffering, why doesn't he do so? And I think this is a reasonable, a valid, and intelligent question to ask. And if you've asked this question, I'd like to informally congratulate you for lifting your mind above a football, a cricket bat, a television set, to consider the deeper meanings of life. And, and we as the Christadelphians, we believe that the answer to this question is actually found in the Bible. And, and here's a summary of what I believe the answer is. Well, I believe that God is, is definitely able to prevent suffering. I mean, he's created the universe. He can prevent suffering. And in fact, God, the Bible tells us, is willing to prevent suffering. If, under the proviso that we choose to be a part of God's ultimate purpose with this earth. And then the second point there... God allows suffering to exist to facilitate his ultimate purpose. So that's my little summary of, of what I believe the answer is based on the Bible. And I want to tonight flesh this out and explain to you how I come to this conclusion from the Bible. But the first thing to ask is, what is God's ultimate purpose? And I'll tell you, simply put, it is to fill the earth with God's glory. That's his purpose. You see here, this is a quote from the Bible, and this is what God says about his purpose. He says, As truly as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. See, God swears by his own existence. As truly as I live, he says, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. But then, of course, you'd ask the question, well, what is God's glory? You might try and imagine what God's glory is and what it would be to fill the earth with God's glory. Maybe some ethereal golden light filling the earth. Like, Wouldn't that be glorious? Perhaps some amazing botanical gardens, glorious gardens. But that, that's not what God's glory is. God's glory is his goodness. Or in broader terms, God's characteristics. And the reason I know this is because in the Bible, a man called Moses actually directly asked God, God, show me your glory, he said. So here's, here's the quotation from the Bible that I'm talking about. Moses said to God, I beseech thee, God, show me thy glory. He wanted to see what God's glory was. And God, God responds to Moses and says, well, I will show you my glory. I will make all my goodness pass before thee. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee. I will be gracious, says God, to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. Behold, there is a place by me, and thou shalt stand upon a rock. And it shall come to pass, while my glory passes by, says God, that I'll put thee in a cliff of the rock, and will cover thee with my hand, while I pass by. So then, you can see from this passage in the Bible that Moses asked God to see his glory and God responded and said that he would make all of his goodness to pass before Moses. God also explains that he's too great for human eyes and that Moses would be protected as God's glory passed by. So there is a physical and a spiritual side to God's glory. Note also that God says he would proclaim the name of Moses. 
did, did God do this? He says he would make his goodness pass before Moses and proclaim his name. Did God do it? Well, yes, he did do that in the very next chapter of the Bible. So here's the next chapter, Exodus chapter 34 in the Bible. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses, and he proclaimed the name of the Lord, just like he said he would. And the Lord passed before Moses like he said he would, and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and the fourth generation. So what I'm trying to show and demonstrate from these quotations from the Bible is that God does what he says he would. He causes his glory to pass before Moses and he proclaims his name and reveals some incredible things about himself that we've just read. God is a God of mercy. And wouldn't it be great to have more mercy in the world? He's a God of long-suffering. Wouldn't it be great to have more people with the characteristic of long-suffering? God is a God of goodness. He's a God of truth. Just imagine if everyone in the world was truthful. Imagine the justice system if everyone simply told the truth. He's a God of forgiveness. I mean, forgiveness is a wonderful characteristic. Imagine if people were more forgiving. And God is a God of justice. He won't clear the guilty. He won't get, let the guilty get away with, with crimes. And perhaps the most interesting characteristic here, and perhaps a bit of a perplexing one, is the final characteristic we read, that he's a God who will visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children to the third and the fourth generation, it says. And I hope to flesh that out and explain what this means tonight. So all these things, I'm saying, are part of God's glory or his characteristic as revealed to Moses in response to the question or request. God says, Moses, please show me your glory. And this is what God revealed to him. So God's ultimate purpose is to fill the earth with his glory. And this is going to be achieved by having a world full of people who are merciful, people who are long-suffering, good, truthful, forgiving and just. And this teaching, Testament, the Bible split into two parts, the Old and the New Testament. This teaching from the Old Testament comes out in the New Testament too, from the mouth of Jesus Christ, when he says things like, blessed are the meek, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart. And it comes out in the words of one of, one of Jesus' most passionate followers who wrote over half the New Testament, the Apostle Paul. This is what he has to say. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. So this is the works of natural human beings. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. They which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God, says Paul. What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is the time when God's glory is going to fill this earth. The kingdom of God's not here yet. It's going to come in the future. In fact, Jesus Christ, in the Lord's Prayer, told us to pray for the kingdom of God. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, and thy will be done on earth. And then the, the Apostle Paul goes on and he says, 
But the fruit of the Spirit, that is, spiritual characteristics, God's characteristics, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. So God wants us to develop these characteristics so we can be part of his ultimate purpose to fill this earth with those characteristics. That's his purpose. God's purpose is with people. Here's some quotes in the Bible which show us that God's purpose is with human beings. Romans 8. And we know that all things work together for good to them who love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. Isaiah 45. For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it. He hath established it. He created it not in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is none else. And 1 Thessalonians 2, that ye should walk worthy of God who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. Notice the kingdom and glory bit there. It's God's purpose to fill the earth with his glory. Okay, so what are we saying? Well, we believe God is able to prevent suffering. He's actually willing to do so if we choose to be a part of his ultimate purpose with the earth. And I've just described to you what his ultimate purpose is to fill this earth with his character. But how will this time end suffering? Well, here's a few quotations about the kingdom of God, this time when God's glory will fill the earth. So when this corruptible, we're currently in a corruptible state, shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal, which we currently are, shall have put on immortality, never dying, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. See, this is the hope. Death will be conquered. Isaiah 40. They that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. We get tired, worn out. It's not going to happen when God's purpose is fulfilled. They shall walk and not faint. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion. With songs and everlasting joy upon their heads, they shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. So this hope of the Bible is for a time when there will be no more sorrow and sighing. It will flee away. And God shall wipe away all tears, no more tears, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. So... What I'm saying is God is able and willing to prevent suffering and that time will be when God's ultimate purpose is fulfilled and we can be there if we choose to be a part of it. Okay, what about this next bit on the slide? God allows suffering to exist to facilitate his ultimate purpose. We need to talk about the concept of sin. Sin, in simple terms is disobedience to God's command. So if God says, I want you to do something, and then you don't do it, well, that's sin. And if he says, I don't want you to do something, and then you do do it, well, that's sin too. Here's a Bible verse about sin. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So the Bible was actually written in Hebrew and Greek languages. So if we look at the original Greek or Hebrew words, we can get more insight into what the meaning of the verse is. Now, this is from the New Testament, which was written in Greek. And the word sinned 
actually means to miss the mark of an arrow falling short of a target. And what would the target be? Well, of course, the target is God's glory, God's character. So all of us have sinned. We failed to live up to God's character, those characteristics that we, we read before. And note that it says, all have sinned. Every single person has failed to live up to God's wonderful character. You see, Bible teaching is that human beings are naturally prone to sin. We don't naturally show forth God's characteristics. They're something that we have to learn to do. Again, from the Apostle Paul, one of the most dedicated followers of Jesus Christ, this is what he had to say about himself in very insightful words. He says, For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing, for to will is present with me. He wants to do what's right, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. See, I can relate to that. You want to do what's right, but you find yourself doing the wrong thing. You want to be kind and thoughtful and merciful to people, but you easily end up being the opposite. He says, For I delight in the law of God after the inward men, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. He tries to do what's right, but he finds himself failing to live up to God's character. That's what the Apostle Paul's saying in these verses. I find it hard to show kindness, mercy and forgiveness to people. Here's a practical example. Someone cuts you off in your car. Oh, that's annoying. The natural reaction is anger. Shake your fist, make rude signs at the people, tailgate, swerve back, beep your horn at them. You know, you show them that they shouldn't have done that. It's very annoying. But that, that's the way of, of human nature. Everyone naturally does that. But a godly way to behave is to show kindness, a friendly wave, show mercy. You didn't mean to do that. No worries, give them a friendly wave, a thumbs up. So the point I'm trying to make is that human beings are biased towards sin. So you have to ask yourself the question then, if humans are biased towards sin, how is God going to fulfill his ultimate purpose with this earth, to fill it with his characteristics, if us humans are just biased to sin the whole time? How's he going to do it? Well, the simple answer is that our characters have to be developed so that we can learn to do what God wants and not what we selfishly want to do. Just like a child needs directing and guiding by their parents, so do we. We need to be guided and directed by God. Have a look at this verse from the Bible. It's a wonderful verse. But now, O Lord, you are our father, says Isaiah. You are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. See, God reveals himself as a father and as a potter. Now, a potter doesn't simply create pots so that the clay can have a nice time being moulded. No, a potter moulds and fires clay to make a pot that is useful, a pot that is beautiful, a pot that reflects the artistic style of the potter. And God is selecting people to be a part of his ultimate purpose and he's moulding them, he's shaping them to be fit vessels for his glory, to manifest his character. It's the same concept as a father disciplining his children, leading them in the right way so that they can learn how to live. Children are naturally selfish. They don't like sharing. But, but a, good, a wise parent would guide their child to, to share and to be kind to people. God's doing the same for us.
And I think this is very relevant and important to understand when we come to look at the topic of suffering. You see, suffering is what God uses to apply pressure on us, like the potter's hands, as he's moulding us to his character. God uses suffering to discipline us. Here's a verse about that in the Bible. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chastens not? So in a way, it's a privilege and an honour to endure suffering that God has given us, because it means we're sons of God. No chastening for the present seems to be joyous. I mean, ask the child who's banished to their room, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterwards it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them that are exercised thereby. So what the Bible here is saying is that suffering has a purpose. And the purpose of suffering is to mould our characters so that we can become more like God. So we can be a part of his ultimate purpose, to fill the earth with his character. What I want to do now is give you a biblical example of God using suffering to, to, to mould people. The Bible is all about the history of the Jews who are presented in the Bible as God's chosen people, the people who God specifically chose to manifest his character in. Now, the history of the Jews is that they were slaves in Egypt and, and God decided to take them out of Egypt and bring them into their own land, the land of Israel. So God brought them out of Egypt into the Sinai Peninsula, which is desert. And the next step was for Israel to go and conquer the land of Canaan and set up their own nation. But when they got close to Canaan, the Jews basically said, no, nah, we, we don't want to do it, it's too hard. Um, they refused and they basically blamed God and they blamed Moses. They didn't want the land that God had, was going to give to them. This is what they said. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses. This is the Jews about to go into the land. But they said, no, nah, we don't want to. And the whole congregation said unto Moses and Aaron, would God we died in Egypt. Or would God we died in this wilderness? And wherefore hath the Lord brought us into this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and children should be a prey? Were it not better for us to return into Egypt? And they said one to another, Let us make a captain other than Moses and Aaron, and let us go back to Egypt. So these Israelites, these Jews, were faithless. But they were God's people. So what did he, he do? We had no choice. He had to discipline his people. He subjected them to 40 years wandering in the wilderness, in the desert. Imagine that, 40 years of wandering in the desert. Here's what God said. But as for you, your carcasses, they shall fall in this wilderness. And your children shall wander in the wilderness 40 years and bear your whoredoms until your carcasses be wasted in the wilderness. Because the Israelites were disobedient, ungrateful, God decided to bring suffering upon them. They had to wander for 40 years in the wilderness. And that the sin of the Israelites brought 40 years of suffering, not just on the fathers, but also on the children, who also had to endure the desert. And I think this teaches us a principle that 
God is actually willing to let other people suffer as a result of somebody else's sin. See, it wasn't the children who'd sinned, it was the fathers. And this, this should remind us of something we read about God's character. God visits the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and the fourth generation. And you say, that's not fair. How could God cause someone else to suffer because of you know, the father's sins? Well, the reason is because God wants us to learn from the sins of others. You know, life from God's perspective is not all about us, the clay, having a fantastic time. It's about us learning the difference between right and wrong. It's about learning to develop God's character so that we can be a part of his ultimate purpose. And I mean, his ultimate purpose involves immortality and the removal of all sin and suffering. Suffering is a tool that's used by God. God who's revealed himself as a father and a potter. So then, God allows suffering to exist to facilitate his ultimate purpose with this earth. Now this principle that suffering is a tool that's used by God applies on a very grand scale because all of the human race is in fact suffering because of the first sin that was ever committed. The sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. So let's take a look at Genesis 1, the first chapter of the Bible because this really, I think, gets to the heart of the reason for sin and suffering in the world today. The Bible tells us that when God created the world, he created it in a state that was very good. So here we go, Genesis chapter 1, first chapter of the Bible. God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And God saw everything that he'd made, and behold, it was very good. Now, I think you'd agree that this is no longer the case. The world can no longer be described as being very good. And the reason for this is we have sin and we have suffering in the world. Everything changed when Adam and Eve sinned. So let's read about God's commandment and their sin. So in the second chapter of the Bible, this is the command that God gave to Adam and Eve. And the Lord God commanded the man, that is Adam, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. And with the command came a consequence, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die, says God to Adam. So there was a, there was a command and a consequence. They were not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden, where God had created and placed Adam and Eve. The consequence? Death. They were living in a perfect environment, one described as being very good. And God warns Adam and Eve that transgression of his commandment would bring death into the world. Now, we don't know how long it was uh, that Adam and Eve went before they sinned and ate of the fruit which God forbade them to eat. But ultimately, at the suggestion of a talking serpent, they did eat the forbidden fruit. So let's read about that. Genesis 3, the third chapter of the Bible. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And the serpent said to the woman, 
Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, You shall not eat it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. So she says, We're not allowed to eat of the tree in the middle of the garden. God said we can't. In fact, she goes further and says, We're not even allowed to touch it, lest we die. So she, she understood the, the command and the consequence. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. God, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. So it's very intriguing to read about this serpent who, who, who can talk. And, and we, we take this literally and believe that there was in fact such a serpent, suggesting to Eve that she should eat this forbidden fruit. In symbol, the serpent represents any thinking that is opposed to the thinking of God. And Adam and Eve adopted this thinking. They adopted this thinking and broke the commandment that God had given them. They sinned. Here we go. And the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise. And she took of the fruit, did eat, and gave also to her husband with her, and he did eat. So they broke the command, the simple command that God had given them. And in doing so, it's very interesting because there's three lusts that are common to the human condition. The lust of the flesh, that is the desire to satisfy the feelings of your body, hunger being one of those feelings. The tree was good for food. The lust of the eyes, you see something, you want to experience it. You, know, you see people riding a jet ski and you think, I want to do that. Pleasant to the eyes. A tree desired to make one wise. This is the pride of life. A desire to advance your position in the world. You see someone doing, doing something in a position of, of power and you think, I want to do that. What had God said? In the day you eat the fruit, you shall surely die. So there was to be a consequence for the sin of Adam and Eve. So let's now read about this consequence which God put upon Adam and Eve because of the sin. Unto the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over thee. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it were you taken, dust you are, and unto dust shalt thou return, says God to Adam. So here we have the curse that God placed upon Adam and Eve because of their sin. And these curses have been passed down to every human being who's descended from Adam and Eve, which is all human beings. This is the root cause of suffering and death. So, so let's break down these, these curses and explain what they're about. I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children, God says to Eve. And even today, of course, women experience pain in childbirth. In fact, countless mothers have died in the very process of, of giving birth. And it says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, 
and he shall rule over you. And it's a fact of history that men have usually gotten the last say. Be it from greater physical or emotional strength, men have ruled it over women for millennium. It's, it's a social, recognised social problem today and it, it's, it's, it's part of this curse that God has placed upon Adam and Eve. Cursed is the ground because of you, God said to Adam. Growing crops is not easy. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Adam was cursed to have to undertake hard labour to get enough food to eat. And even today with increased mechanisation, everyone still has to go to work to earn enough food to, to have the daily provisions. And it's a worry constantly on the minds of, of millions of people how to get enough food. Thorns and thistles the ground would bring forth for you, says God, and you shall eat the plants of the field. Pests would start to complete with, compete with humans. Growing food would, of course, be a lot easier for us if it wasn't for pests. And by the sweat of your face, God says, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it wast thou taken. Dust thou art, to dust shalt thou return. This would be the ultimate punishment for Adam and Eve's sin. Death, the cessation of life. So there we have the consequence of Adam and Eve's sin. Because, of Adam, because we're descendants of Adam and Eve, we too suffer these effects of death and suffering. But you ask, why would God allow this? Why would God allow suffering like we've just read about? Pain in childbirth, so difficult to get enough food. Why do we die? Why would God allow that? Well, the answer is the same as before. God allows these sufferings to exist to facilitate his ultimate purpose. God brought these sufferings on humankind to teach us of the seriousness of sin, to teach us of the seriousness of Adam and Eve's sin, and to seek God, to turn to God for salvation, to seek God and his character. God allows suffering to exist to facilitate his ultimate purpose, to fill this earth with his character. Now, after the sin of Adam and Eve, God actually enforced the punishment for sin, as we've just explained. But he also provided hope of salvation from sin, suffering and death. And this is what the Apostle Paul who we've quoted several times from, has to say about that. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of God, who subjected it, as we've just explained, in the hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For I consider, he says, the sufferings of this present time not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Remember those quotes about mounting up with wings as eagles and all pain and suffering ending? That's what the Apostle Paul is talking about. So I hope you can see how suffering does play a part in God's purpose with this earth. Now our topic for tonight is the Bible offers salvation from sin and suffering. And what I want to talk to you about now is the way in which God is going to save us from sin and suffering. You see, Adam and Eve weren't the only ones to receive a curse after their sin. God actually placed a curse upon the serpent in the Garden of Eden. So let's read the curse on the serpent. And God said to the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go. 
and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And here's the important bit. And I will put enmity between thee, the serpent, and the woman, between thy seed, the serpent's seed, and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now this is actually a very important Bible passage because it actually contains a promise of salvation from sin. Notice that it's speaking about a conflict, a conflict between the serpent and a singular male individual. It says his heel at the end there. So what we're going to do now is zoom up a bit and and have a look at what this is saying. What this passage is telling us is that the seed of the woman, whoever that is, would bruise the serpent's head. So you can see in the picture there, there's someone's heel stepping on the serpent's head, killing it. And the serpent shall bruise his heel. So we learn from his heel that it's actually a a singular male individual, this seed of the woman. And so you can see that the heel in the picture there has been bruised or bitten by the serpent. The seed of the woman is actually a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. So the seed of the woman is wounded temporarily on the hill, bitten by the serpent on the hill. Jesus Christ suffered a lot in his life. He died. So in that sense, he was bruised by the serpent. But he raised from the dead. It wasn't permanent. It was only a temporary wound by the serpent. The serpent was stamped on the head by this seed of the woman. When Jesus Christ was raised and given immortality, he no longer had human nature. So what's important to understand is what the serpent represents. The serpent represents human nature. That is, any thinking that's opposed to God's characteristics, those characteristics that we talked about. The serpent in the Garden of Eden spoke the opposite of what God had said. You shall not surely die, says the serpent. And human nature says the opposite to God. You know, I want to be angry with that person who cut me off in their car. I don't want to show forgiveness or mercy. So that's human nature. And, And that's what the serpent represents. Now, Jesus Christ, this seed of the woman, he came to this world with human nature. But he conquered human nature. He never gave in to what I would call the serpent thinking, thinking that is natural to human nature. And because Jesus never sinned, God actually raised him from the dead, removed his human nature and gave him a divine, immortal nature. So he no longer struggles against sin. Jesus Christ is no longer subject to sin or suffering. He's conquered the serpent. He's conquered human nature. He stamped it on the head. He killed it. Here's a verse about what Jesus Christ did. For as much then as children are partakers of flesh and blood... Jesus Christ also himself took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, or in the, in the actual Greek it means a false accuser, which is really a reference to the serpent. So, for as much as children are partakers of flesh and blood, what that really means is we're, we're human nature. We all have flesh and blood. Jesus Christ took part of the same. Jesus had human nature, that's what it's saying that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. Jesus conquered human nature. He never sinned. He stamped the serpent on the head. There's another symbol in the Bible 
which is equivalent to the serpent being crushed or stamped on the head. And that is crucifixion. When Jesus went to the cross, he was declaring to the whole world that human nature needs to be conquered. Jesus did conquer human nature. He lived a perfect life. He never sinned. He always hit that mark. His arrow always hit the the yellow, the target. He hit the mark of God's glory. So then after his death, the grave couldn't hold him. God raised him from from the grave and gave him immortality. And our role in life is to try and conquer the serpent that is within ourselves. We need to conquer human nature. But unlike Jesus Christ, unfortunately, we all sin. And we're destined to stay in the grave. But God has given us an opportunity to have our sins forgiven. But, but how, do we, how do we get our sins forgiven? Well, it's by identification with Jesus Christ. If we make Jesus Christ our inspiration, our example, if we live following his, his pattern, then God is actually prepared to forgive us our sins. It's a wonderful gift of mercy and grace by God. God so loved the world, it says in the Bible, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God wants to fill the earth with people who love him, who love his characteristics. That's, that's his whole purpose in creation, and he's going to do it. But there's another important step that is required for forgiveness, and that is called baptism. So baptism is another symbol which represents the putting to death of human nature. It's a symbolic death and a symbolic resurrection, which is done publicly. I mean, there's a baptismal bath right there. It's done publicly to symbolize the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and, and to show people that we're ready to, to follow Jesus Christ for the rest of our lives. And if we get baptised, God is willing to forgive us our sins in his grace, in his mercy. So then we have three really equivalent symbols. We have a serpent being crushed on the head, symbolising human nature being put to death. We have Christ on the cross, symbolising human nature being crucified. And we have baptism, symbolising human nature being put to death in the waters of baptism and rising to a new way of life following God's character. Once human nature is put to death, it's time to live by God's characteristics. And and this is explained very clearly by the Apostle Paul. This is what he says. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptised into Jesus Christ were baptised into his death? Knowing this, that our old man, that is the old person who just does whatever they want and shakes their fist at cars swerving them, is crucified and that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. So this is talking about human nature. The Apostle Paul says our old man is crucified with Christ. He's talking about human nature being drowned in baptism. Now, of course, there's not a physical corpse left in the water when someone gets baptised. It's a symbol. It's a start of a new way of life, following God's commands. A way of life reflecting God's character with the aim of being a part of God's ultimate purpose to fill the earth with his glory. Now, this time that the earth is going to be filled with God's glory, 
is called the kingdom of God on earth. And as I mentioned before, this is something Jesus said we should pray for. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the kingdom of God will be a time, as we've already seen, that sin and suffering will be gone. Let's have a look at these quotes again. They that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. So our topic tonight was the Bible offers salvation from sin and suffering. We've talked about sin. We've talked about suffering. We've talked about salvation. And so the question that, of course, I want to leave you with tonight is, Will you respond? Will you find out more about the Bible and and come to a knowledge of of God's purpose? Jesus said in Mark chapter 16 to his disciples, he said, You disciples, I want you to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptised shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. So there's three steps that we we really need to take to gain salvation from sin and suffering. Three simple steps to be a part of God's ultimate purpose to fill this earth with his glory. The first step is to understand the gospel message. Understand what what God's purpose with the earth is. And and we've started to explain that tonight. Second step is is to be baptised. Make a public declaration that you want to follow Jesus Christ and that you want to adopt God's character. And finally, live God's character in your life. By live God's character, what we mean is try our best to adopt God's characteristics into our lives and one day we'll have a hope to be a part of of that time when God's glory will fill the earth. We'll, We'll help to fill the earth with his glory. And I hope that's helped explain the Bible.